Reading, short and deep. Hi, this is Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, Zero Hour, by Ray Bradbury. This is a story that I have to admit, Jesse, I forgot. I read it in Illustrated Man years and years ago. It had not made the powerful impression on me that some of the stories in that collection, like the Velt, did. Mm. But now that you've gotten us to look at it again, gotten me to look at it again, I have to say it's rich and quite provocative. Uh, what made you bring it up? Uh, had it stuck with you through all these years? Well, it it kind of had. Uh, the title is a, a bit uh, less exciting than a lot of Ray Bradbury's, but it, it is about what the story is about, so that helps. Uh, however, there was a new TV show adaptation of it, which was very strange because it's very short, this story. Um, and so that got me thinking about it. And, of course, I, I, I had read, I think, all the stories in the Illustrated Man at some point. But actually, it was the radio dramas. There's many radio drama adaptations. In fact, it may be the most adapted Ray Bradbury story to radio drama, which is kind of surprising. Um, there's a suspense version. There's an NBC, uh, There's like four or five suspense versions. Uh, there's an NBC short story version. BBC has done it. And X-1 and Dimension X have all done zero hour. And So obviously a lot of people seem to think it's a story worth paying attention to. I, I think it's really interesting in that it's, it's kind of a time capsule as well. Um, and it feels very strange for it to be a TV show today. Because, to me, this is a very 1950s story. Although, of course, it was actually published in 1947. Indeed. It's, it's a post-war story, but it's that post-war, everything's great after the war sort of story. Maybe, maybe we should tell people the plot, though. Good idea. So, it's set in uh, suburbia. Uh, probably uh, America, I think. United States, um, in a very blissful future, everybody's uh, at peace with everyone, including every country in the world is at peace with every other country. And we meet the Morris family with Mary, the mother, uh, the daughter Minx, which is a great name. Mink, Mink. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> you're right, it's Mink. Um, and the father who eventually shows up, who is named Henry. And uh, the kids are out playing in the yard. Uh, the daughter is seemingly the leader of a group of children who are playing a new game called Invasion. Um, the mother is very concerned that she not get too dirty, that she have her bath, that she drink her milk. Um, but she also is subconsciously taking in the information her daughter's giving about this new game they're playing. And... Uh, I think it eventually gets the better of her, and she starts to believe it. <laughs> um, and I think that's the basically the plot. Did I miss anything? Uh, 
Yeah, I guess that that pretty much is. There are a lot of interesting details, uh, Bradbury being the the mm -hmm. imagist and lyricist that he is. But uh, I think what you missed uh, if, in terms of the plot is the ending. Mm hmm. Um, what is what what happens at the ending? Do you think, Eric? I think that um, invaders come through a fourth dimension thanks to the help of children nine and under throughout the world mm -hmm. and simultaneously attack all of the adults in the world mm -hmm. and, and win. Yeah. What happens after? That's, a, that's what I was wondering about this TV show. Is it like this story doesn't really work as an after, right? I think it's leading right up to that knock knock on the on the attic door. The last and line of the of the uh, the story, when Mink opens the door into the attic where her mother and father are cowering in fear because they've been hearing these heavy heavy footsteps, and we're told that there are fifty footsteps, and then in the next line, fifty persons. But the word heavy is is in all caps. So mm -hmm. we don't think that these are seven-year-olds. These are, you know, a lot of people. And presumably there's a lot of people going into houses all over the world. So mm -hmm. the number of invaders is enormous. The last line is Mink looking around the edge of the door when she's opened it up, seeing her parents there and saying, peekaboo. <laughs> and, you know... <laughs> It, it, it strikes me that that, that game of Pinkaboo uh, that people play with little children uh, is delightful for little children because it reminds them that there are things there that they cannot see. Mm. But whether you see them or not, there is a reality to the world out there. Mm -hmm. Normally, Pinkaboo is a game, at least in my experience, that adults use to engage and delight children. I've mm -hmm. never actually seen children play peekaboo with each other. Mm -hmm. So that last line with Mink saying peekaboo is really a turning of the tables. Mm -hmm. It's the kids saying, now I'm going to teach you that there are things out there whether you can see them or not. And this time, peekaboo isn't delightful. It is quite the opposite. Although Mink seems to like her parents, she she says yeah. to her mother, "I'll try to make sure they don't hurt you too much." Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't think there is an after in a way. I think that the story isn't about what kind of civilization we should have and how to deal with invasion. I think that the story is about complacency, either political complacency in that idealized suburban future, or parental complacency about what it means to live in a world that has children. I mean, how can they forget what it was like when they were children? Mm -hmm. But they do. Yeah. Bradbury has some very interesting things to say in this story and, and in others, uh, the Velt is one uh, very similar in that it's sort of about parental non care of, you know, not taking a special attention to what, what is going on in the minds of children here? Uh, the aliens drill, uh, are saying things that are very plainly, uh, you know, 
serving the children's desires. They don't have to take baths anymore. Right? They, they get to go to the movies twice on on Sundays or whatever day it is. And uh, when I think it's when, important, forgive me, I don't mean this as a correction. I think it's important that, if I recall correctly, it's Saturday. Mm-hmm, uh, you're right. I I think of it as important for two reasons. First, I'm old enough to remember when going off to a Saturday matinee was one of the treats that my parents allowed me in the post-World War II period. And the second uh, reason that I think it's important is that this story in which the family we meet is actually, I think, in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Um, This is a story of American suburbia at a time when America is by majority, uh, a white country, a Protestant country. And, uh, of course, they're not going to be allowed to go on Sunday, right? No. Saturday is the play day. That's true. You are right. It is Saturday. However, um, I think the interesting part is, is that Drill never lies to the children, or at least he never lies to them about anything of substance. He doesn't say I'm a Martian. Um, she just assumes he's a Martian, and you know, there's something. He gives her words and ex- obviously has answered questions. Right? Uh, wh- why do you want to invade the Earth? Uh, well, we have to do it this way because the Earth is otherwise impregnable. Right? She she's learning vocabulary words from <laughs> this alien um, that she doesn't understand. Has to go ask her mother what they mean. Um, so in this story, like in the Velt, and also in a story called The Small Assassin, which I'm not sure is in uh, The Illustrated Man, but it's something like that. Um, I've, I noticed that it's like Bradbury has picked up on something that I myself have picked up on, and that basically children are monsters, uh, at least sometimes. <laughs> uh, when I was young... Um, I wanted to join the uh, the Boy Scouts because I wanted to wear a uniform, and that would make me more militaristic, so I could feel like those war games I was playing were more uh, realistic somehow, right? I, but when I went to join up, I was told, "Oh, you have to pay for your own uniform." That doesn't seem like the military to me. <laughs> right. right. And then you have to do all these things like raising money for things. That doesn't seem like the military to me. And you have to swear an oath to the queen. Oh, God, this doesn't sound that great. It doesn't sound as um, cool as I thought it would be. I I ended up not doing it. But that desire to join the military is a very boy thing. And it also reminds me of what happened in World War II uh, and prior with the Nazi youth. Many children were forced to join. Uh, in fact, all of them were forced to join. But a lot of them were very willingly doing it. And at the end, uh, fighting the Americans and the Canadians and the British, you know, pouring in from the West, they had Nazi youth units uh, firing, you know, machine guns at grown-up soldiers. And it was insane. And yet... That's kind of what's happening in this story. They're turning against adults. They're turning against their own parents. They're spying on their own parents. They're this is a monstrous, horrible story, and it's kind of real. 
it's it's clear that uh, there's some deep ambivalence in Mink. I mean, she obviously loves her mother. Um, she wants to go to her. She thanks her. She's polite. She says, I'll make sure they don't hurt you too much. And there's a passage in the middle of the story where the mother is thinking about children and mm-hmm. how they both love and hate. You know, so there is that ambivalence. But I've got that quote right here. Go ahead. That uh, she's sitting in her her electric massage chair, and then it says, "Children, children, children, and love and hate side by side. Sometimes children loved you, hated you, all in a half a second. Strange children, did they ever forget and forgive the whippings and the harsh, strict words of command?" She wondered, "How can you ever forget those, or forgive?" those over and above you, those tall and silly dictators. Yeah. Um, She's thinking it, but of course, one of the special characteristics of Mary Morris is that she is able to retrieve a sense of what it must have been like to be a child. She's Mm -hmm. attentive enough. But in general, the story seems to be suggesting... um, that adults aren't attentive enough, that they're attentive only to the physical safety of the children. The father comes home, turns out when Mary quizzes him about what he has seen Mink doing, uh, he's already checked to see if they were dealing with anything electrical. So it's it's just metal parts, as if mm-hmm. that's enough. Uh, the, the, the bellicose nature of children's fun is how the story begins. Oh, mm-hmm. it was to be so jolly. What a game. Such excitement they hadn't known in years. Now, this published in 1947, so, you know, when you think, well, what do you mean they haven't had it in years? It could either be that, you know, it was kind of exciting when the war was going on, or it could be uh, that they haven't been able to play for a long time because the world is so peaceful and so on. Well, later we find out when Mary talks to her her friend, uh, Helen, that in fact, when they were kids, they played Nazis and Japs. Right. So they were kids during or right after World War II. If you assume that a generation is around 20 years, if if they were seven years old in 1948 or so, then this is 20 years afterwards. We're talking about 1968. So the the technological future that's being displayed here is very much supposed to be (laughs) by 1968. Well, we still haven't gotten anywhere close to uh, rockets hovering overhead and so on. Um, Mm -hmm. So, in fact, we haven't had this much fun in years means they haven't had real enemies that they could turn into cartoon enemies. Mm-hmm. call them by derogatory names and run around playing at that game of invasion. But now they can. So the children are doing something that children, as you say, like to do. Whether or not one characterized that as monstrous, it certainly is widespread at a certain age. Until the age of video games, though, I don't think you find large numbers of adults playing um, at war games and um, 
cowboys and Indians and other mm-hmm. such uh, cops and robbers, uh, stereotypical conflict games. Mm-hmm. Now they're becoming more uh, widely uh, fashionable. Indeed. So as I look at this, um, I'm thinking there shouldn't be an end to the story. I mean, we're not supposed to worry about what life is like after um, 1968, this putative 1968. We're supposed to worry about what it's going to be like if we get to this 1968. I think that this is a story not so much to tell us that children are monsters, although they may be, but to tell us that if they are monstrous, it's because of the way that we have become adults, that we have lost imagination, that we have failed to recognize the respect and significance owed to the the desires of children. But we, in this case, I mean adults. I think this is a story meant to, in a sense, in a funny way, a humorous way, scare adults into recognizing that they have lost something crucial to social cohesion. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's something creepy also in their world. Right near the beginning, it says, you know, you, you mentioned the rockets hanging in the air, and that's exactly right. It's almost like a sort of Damocles hanging over, over everybody. It says... Uh, in thousands of other cities, there were trees and children and avenues, businessmen in their quiet offices, taping their voices or watching televisors. And then that line, rockets hovered like darning needles in the blue sky. And sounds, sounds like nice, but if you, are these rockets of, you know, mail rockets and transportation rockets, or are they what we would think of as rockets overhead? You know, ICBMs. Right. It says, uh, the next line is, there was a universal quiet. Uh, sorry, there was a universal quiet conceit, an easiness of men, accustomed to peace, quite certain there would never be trouble again. And then a really troubling line next. Arm in arm, men all over the earth were a united front. That is freaking me out. But the next line's <laughs> even worse. The perfect weapons were held in equal trust by all nations. And then the next line, a situation of incredibly beautiful balance had been brought about. It's almost as if those those rockets hanging overhead uh, just need to be tipped slightly out of balance. And there were no traitors among men, no unhappy ones, no disgruntled ones. And it's, oh man, this is this is horrible (laughs) it's a piece that is so deadly well i think it's not only deadly it's dangerous i mean let me put it another way it's deadly not only in the emotional sense it's deadly in the practical sense um this is a 1947 story russia doesn't get the atomic bomb demonstrate that it has it by running a test until 1949 so at the moment that this story is published the United States is the only nation on Earth that has atomic weapons. Atomic weapons in an incredibly powerful way, culturally, imagistically, has ended World War II just two years earlier in, with an image, that mushroom cloud, that's ubiquitous 
in the 1940s. And yet here, two years before Russia gets the atom bomb, while the United States is still trying to keep anyone else from getting the atom bomb, Bradbury is talking about the doctrine of mutually assured deterrence, Mm -hmm. that peace will be brought about by everybody having incredibly deadly weapons. But in fact, I think you're right. This is ominous. As we read it, we realize that this complacency, oh, we're all arm in arm. This is not so good. I wouldn't mind being arm in arm with the whole world if we were all standing around in, uh, you know, shorts and tennis shirts and uh, square dancing. But to Mm. have us all holding huge lethal weapons in one arm, in one hand while we're doing the dancing, I think I'd find that a pretty terrifying dance. Yes. And and Bradbury is reminding us that that's the case once these technologies exist. Absolutely. So it's against, it's against complacency. That use of rockets, which come up in the very first part of the story, and then we come to them again, it is a metonymy for a sort of Damocles. In 1947, everybody knows what the word rocket means. It's got nothing to do with satellites, and it's got nothing to do with exploration. The only rocket that would come to anyone's mind in 1947 is the V2. It mm-hmm. rains terror down on, on London. Right? And that's, that's what they know about, the readers, in 1947. So Bradbury is saying, ah, you know, we're going to turn it into this wonderful, you know, somehow technology of peace. I think there's another hint. 1947, um, that's when Volkswagen starts to try to export into Mm. the United States. Again and again, every time we have a reference to an automobile, it's a beetle-shaped automobile. Mm. Volkswagens were known as the beetle, but I'll remind, you know, anyone who's listening to us right now, that the Volkswagen, the people's car was in fact decreed to exist by Hitler mm-hmm. so that there would be something good and cheap in order to give mobility to his nation so that the Volk, the German people, would all have this mass-produced, advanced, inexpensive, reliable thing. And of course, it wasn't popular in the United States, but then after the war, it came in. And so the existence in this story of beetle-shaped motors going back and forth in the street, and it's what Henry Morris drives, um, is another demonstration that there has been a fifth column movement, that the United States has been invaded by German technology, just as the kids are the fifth column. And that's a phrase that has to do with turncoats, with traitors, with people becoming communists during the commie you know, scare, the red scare, um, and, and taking over the country. And Mary Morris uses that phrase in her own thinking, fifth column. She <laughs> thinks about it. Uh, by the way, um, you know, there is, I, I, Bradbury, as, as you know well, stopped his formal education after high school, but he read and read and read and read. And his whole life, he always uh, talked about the, the crucial importance of libraries. Um, in my own study of Bradbury's work, it's clear that sometimes he picks up things that maybe aren't right, but he picked them up because <laughs> he just read in a library and didn't necessarily get to discuss it with anybody or read, stumble upon a refutation. Um, in this particular story, 
I can't help but wonder, though, if he hasn't read a 1937 novel by H.G. Wells called Star Begotten. Mm. Um, it's a novel that was, in fact, a bestseller at its, in its time. And when Bradbury was growing up and reading voraciously to because he loved it, um, Wells, of course, was still alive and thriving and was probably the, the biggest name in what we now call science fiction in the world. Starbegotten is a story in which Martians are dying. Mars is a dying planet. That's an old conceit. It goes back uh, into the 18th, 17th century, actually. Um, and so the Martians, being incapable of getting to the Earth, but wanting to have a way to continue to live, manage to project themselves psychically into embryos human embryos so that although the children who are born look like human beings they somehow in mind temperament culture are becoming anthropomorphic martians that is they are human anthropomorphic they are shaped like us but in fact the story is about an invasion of martians who come to us through our children but in that case utterly hidden because we can't see them until after they are given birth to. Um, I can't help but think that, uh, that Bradbury has this in mind, but he's doing it in the science fictional way of fourth dimensions and so on, rather than psychic projection, the way Wells does it. Mm -hmm. Again, though, it's, it's similar to the midwitch cuckoos as well. Uh, it, it, that story, uh, that novel sounds very similar. Uh, by John Wyndham, uh, by John Wyndham, yeah. It, the, this the the children as different from the next generation. This is actually turns out to be true as well with the with the hippies, the children of the World War II vets, right? Yeah, being so, somehow different. They they're just not like us. We don't understand their ways. Interestingly, by the time you get to the '60s and you've got those teenage or early 20s um, children of the, the baby boom generation, they didn't turn out to be more bellicose than their parents. They turned no. out to be more peaceful. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, their parents were engaged in a never-ending war. I mean, the war ends World War II in 45, nominally, um, but things are tense. There's the Berlin airlift in 48. There is the, uh, all of the, the war that fl flares up in colonial reorganization starting in that period. Uh, India becomes free. Israel, the state of Israel is created. By 1950, we're into the period of the McCarthy era. The Korean War uh, rages for a couple or three years. Um, uh, the United States leading a United Nations uh, charge against Korea and China. Um, in fact, the parents of the World War II era remain at war. And so it's interesting to me that in reality, these children who aren't like their parents become peaceful. In Bradbury's story, he posits peace. So the parent, the children who aren't like their parents are warlike. Mm-hmm. Either way, there is a there is a reversal, but I think it's a reversal because parents just don't share the imagination of the children, and this story tells us that parents should. I, I love that that transition point 
where the older boys, the 12 year olds, they just don't get it. And in this story, there's one boy or one girl who just during the play, she suddenly runs away. Right? She runs across the yard and the father says, what did you do to her? Did you hit her? <laughs> right. She, she's just not getting the game anymore. And I remember myself, you know, there was a period of time when one summer I would be able to play with, with a toy. And then the very next summer, playing with a toy? Right. I could build a toy. I could knock down a, a tower. Uh, I could, you know, play with a, with a tool, but I couldn't play with a toy. Right. It just suddenly stopped. Bradbury really does have the imagination of children. It's wonderful. Uh, I'd, I'd like to point out, too, some, some other special features of, of Bradbury's excellence as a writer that one might glide over because the writing is so easy to follow. Mm -hmm. um, we're told about uh, Pete Britz and Dale Jarek. They're 12-year-olds. They just won't believe in drill. We're told they just won't believe in Br drill, the, the leader of the invaders. They're so snooty because they're growing up. You'd think they'd know better, Mink says. They were little only a couple of years ago. I hate them worst. We'll kill them first. Yeah. Now, interesting, right? I mean, if you think about what was going on during World War II, there was the enemy. But, you know, you couldn't blame an enemy soldier for fighting against you because after all he was the enemy but if one of your own became a traitor mm -hmm. oh, those were people you could blame those were ones you could really attack and when you think of what was done to people in Europe who turned and collaborated I mean it was much worse to be a collaborator than it was to be the enemy in terms of your moral status and what could be done to you you know, there were conventions that said what kind of treatment had to be accorded to, to captured soldiers, but nothing about collaborators. So Bradbury has this right. He also has right, I think, some things that you adults just don't notice. His use of language is so good. The mother mm -hmm. says, why do you hate to, why is it children hate water? No matter what age you live in, children hate water behind the ears. Ha mm ha. -hmm. <laughs> But that's interesting. Children don't hate water. In fact, little boys stomp in puddles whether they need to or not. Kids love to go swimming. They love to go out in the rain. What the mother has missed, but we careful readers can get, is that water behind the ears is an expression for being a baby. You get water behind the ears when someone dips your head backwards into a bassinet and bathes you. When they say you're still wet behind the ears, what they mean is you don't dry yourself, you are bathed. And what mm -hmm. children really hate isn't water. It's being treated like children. <laughs> you know, in another example, I think of the, the terrific way in which Bradbury uses language. Um, we've been told that there is a word, impregnable. The whole question of sex in this story is enormous by its silence, but it's there. Um, and that's a word that, that Drill apparently has used to explain to Mink and all the other children in the world um, why it is the Martians needed a new way to uh, attack the Earth, because otherwise the Earth was impregnable, uh, which, of course, 
in star begotten, they, you know, the Martians do impregnate us because they turn our fetuses into Martians. Uh, we're impregnable, said mom in a mock seriousness. That's the word Drill used. Impreg, that was the word. My, my, Drill's a brilliant little boy. Two-bit words. And of course, now we know what kind of word Drill is, Right. He's going to drill. He's going to impregnate. He's going to put the Martians into the earth. And that phrase, two-bit words. What do you call that twisty cylinder of metal that actually makes holes at the end of a drill? It's a bit. Uh. And whether Bradbury intends it or not, his awareness of the echoes of words and how they work in multiple contexts at once, that and his sense of imagination have made him a great writer. This story, though, it seems to me, is what makes him a great writer to remind all of us, particularly adults, about the importance of imagination in childhood. But no matter what we say about Bradbury in this one story, as you say, you can't help but wonder what might have come next because there's always more to say. <laughs>